The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Wednesday, December 9th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Why did a French company send a whole case of wine into space last year? And if NASA technically bans alcohol, how come so many astronauts drink it? And why are so many companies designing microgravity alcoholic beverage options? All is not merry and bright behind the scenes of some of the more unlikely Christmas songs that have been banned in the past. And you can blast into the past with this site that broadcasts classic old radio shows all day and night. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So on Monday, I mentioned that the astronauts on board the International Space Station had just been delivered all the fixings for a great Christmas feast. One thing that was missing from their dinner supplies, however, or was at least left out of the press release, was wine, or whiskey, or beer, or any kind of alcoholic holiday libation. And that's because technically it's not allowed. NASA and other space agencies have a long-standing ban on alcohol due to the volatility of ethanol, alcoholic drink's main ingredient. But around this time last year, a resupply vehicle did take alcohol up to the space station, a dozen bottles of red Bordeaux wine, to be specific. Packed in specially designed metal canisters, it was the most alcohol that had ever been sent into space at one time. Now, it wasn't going up because one of the astronauts forgot to cancel their monthly wine subscription box, or they'd all suddenly got a hankering for a zero-gravity wine and cheese tasting. No, the case of Bordeaux was the first of six planned experiments as part of the WISE mission, a project by the Luxembourg startup Space Cargo Unlimited, in partnership with several European universities, to study how space affects wine. Specifically, Space Cargo Unlimited is interested in how microgravity and space radiation affects the aging process in wine. Their aim is to better understand food conservation, taste, and innovations in agriculture as a whole. They compare this study to that of Louis Pasteur's 19th century discovery that bacteria was present in wine and how to treat it to prevent spoiling. Quoting Supercluster, CEO of Space Cargo Unlimited, Nicolas Gome, says wine appealed to his research team because it's a multi-component system that involves plants and microbes interacting in a highly controlled environment. By sending these components to space, it would allow researchers on Earth to study how the lack of gravity affects the complex biological processes that result in wine. Gravity is the only parameter of life that hasn't changed in the past four and a half billion years, says Gome. So when you recreate the Earth environment in space without that key parameter, it's very stressful to life. Gome and his team of researchers, which includes Michael LeBaire, who Gome described as one of the foremost space biologists in Europe, hope that studying how the stress of microgravity affects grapevines and yeast will yield important insights that may help scientists understand how plants and microbes will respond to a rapidly changing climate on Earth. End quote. 
The team has since also launched vine calluses, quote, the white tissue that forms on cut grapevines that are used to start new vines, end quote, and Merlot and Sauvignon canes, which are the mature shoot of a grapevine. The results of all of these have yet to be published, but Gom said that the vine calluses, which were specifically used to study drought conditions, had a significantly different response in space compared to the controls on Earth. The company's next experiment will align them even more closely with their inspiration, Louis Pasteur, as they embark on a study of grape fermentation. Now, all of this can easily sound a bit frivolous, maybe, but studying alcohol in space is neither new nor merely a fun curiosity. Understanding how microgravity affects plants and microbes can better inform how we conserve or innovate on them on Earth. And Space Cargo Unlimited is hardly alone in sending alcohol to space to study. A Japanese distillery sent some whiskey into orbit to study its aging process a few years back. Budweiser has sent beer into space four times to experiment on barley. And Coors conducted some experiments on yeast microgravity in the 90s. But beyond improving our understanding of plants, microbes, and the fermentation process on Earth, studying alcohol in space is also useful for the people who live in space, especially as we look to expand space tourism and send people to Mars, where, by the way, Budweiser has said they want to build the first Martian brewery. Of course, we could straight-up ban people from imbibing in space, which sounds like a pretty fine idea, but Supercluster and Space Cargo Unlimited both point out the importance of alcohol as a form of social bonding and a creature comfort important for psychological well-being, something of utmost importance when you're asking people to spend extended periods of time isolated from the rest of the world. For example, the crews who spend winter in the South Pole to study the effects of long-term isolation for the benefit of space crews are allowed one drink a week with a meal. It's a common, if highly regulated, allowance in many high-stress jobs. And whether or not it's allowed, it's likely to happen somehow. Supercluster points out that the scientists who lived in the Biosphere 2 facility in the 90s started making alcohol out of fermented bananas after just a few months in isolation. So knowing more about how alcohol changes in space and how it affects the human body in space is crucial so that it can be enjoyed responsibly, moderately, and with a purpose. And that takes us back to NASA's ban on alcohol due to concerns about the dangers of ethanol coming into contact with any of the spacecraft's hardware. Although some, like Chris Carberry, CEO of Explore Mars, suspects that's just the excuse given for banning something that some could see as a frivolous use of taxpayer dollars. Ban or not, alcohol has consistently found its way into space, even outside of formal studies. In the early days of NASA, small amounts of booze would often be secreted away for astronauts to surprise each other with, although even then, many were nervous to indulge, knowing that it was likely that if anything at all went wrong on the flight, the alcohol would be blamed whether it was involved or not. A bit of alcohol was considered for incorporation into a holiday meal for the astronauts in the 1970s, but was axed at the last minute when NASA decided it might reflect poorly on the agency. In Russia, meanwhile, quoting again from Supercluster, many of Russia's finest space explorers have gone to great lengths to bring a little liquid relief with them on their journey to space. They've smuggled bottles of cognac in hollowed-out books, filled up plastic meal containers with booze and mislabeled them as juice, and even gone on strict diets before launch so they could smuggle bottles in their spacesuits and still make weight requirements. End quote. 
They're not having any ragers either, however. They have small amounts with meals or use a few grams to help them sleep, as opposed to using pills like many of the Americans. It's technically banned by Russia's space agency as well, but they tend to turn a blind eye since it's never been abused. With private companies entering the rings, space tourism nigh, and the looming possibility of permanent colonies on Mars, figuring out how to safely produce, consume, and react to alcohol in space will oddly be quite an important challenge to overcome. And there's already a lot of work being done by various parties towards how to make alcoholic beverages that can actually be consumed in microgravity. Like pouches and straws, yes, but also champagne in a kind of ball form, and scotch channeled directly into your mouth. For more on all of that, check out the link in the show notes and also the book Alcohol in Space by Chris Carberry. Most of us are familiar with the controversy surrounding the song Baby It's Cold Outside and the way some of its lyrics have aged poorly, as well as the patronizing Do They Know It's Christmas. But a number of other Christmas songs have also elicited bans and protests over the years. Here are a few you may not have heard of. First, Tommy Connor and Jimmy Boyd's 1952 I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. Now, when you listen, you were supposed to understand that what the singer actually saw was his dad dressed as Santa Claus kissing his mom, but critics thought that since some children wouldn't get the joke, it was too scandalous for Christmas. And I mean, case in point, it took me well into adulthood to ever realize that the song was not about adultery. And even for grown-ups who did get it, many said the song went too far. Boston's Catholic Archdiocese condemned the song, and it was banned from West Virginia's main broadcasting company. Although, like with many songs on this list, the ban just made people love it more, and it was soon repealed. The next entry is pretty self-explanatory, Weird Al Yankovic's 1986 Christmas at Ground Zero. Yankovic wasn't surprised when the track, which was designed to humorously critique Cold War anxieties, was immediately banned from most radio stations. In fact, he was even quoted as saying it became his way of getting out of ever making a Christmas album, something his record label was always pressuring him to do. Although to his credit, Yankovic himself pulled the song from his live show lineup after people began referring to the former site of the World Trade Centers as Ground Zero after 9-11. Another one from the 80s that gets rehashed every single year in the United Kingdom, at least, is Celtic punk band The Pogues' The Fairy Tale of New York. An instant classic when it debuted in the UK, the highly lyrical song features a slur for gay men in the second half. A hint, it's used to rhyme with the previous lyric, you scumbag, you maggot, which obviously doesn't fly with a lot of people these days. Over the years, it's been censored or outright pulled from rotation, and there's almost always a backlash from people defending the song. The Pogues themselves have sometimes said the bands are amusing, and other times seemed a bit more annoyed, defending the usage of the word as something in character for the rude singer in the song, not something that they were saying themselves. Some gay men have expressed that it's not so much the word itself being in the song, but rather people using its inclusion as an excuse to shout the word at the top of their lungs when singing the song in bars. Or, as journalist Harrison Brock said on Twitter this year in response to the annual British debate, quote, The word itself being in Fairy Tale of New York doesn't bother or offend me. 
But straight people being so angry and outraged at its removal and literally fighting and arguing for the right to sing it bothers me deeply. End quote. The Pogues seem to agree as they retweeted Brock's take earlier this year. Interestingly enough, that's not the only word that gets changed or censored in the song. It also uses the word arse, which is a more inappropriate version of the word ass in the UK, and there have been a few live TV performances where the network has made the band change arse to ass, but left the F word in, which is just kind of mind-boggling as an American. But alright, moving on to a song that the writer actually tried to have removed from the airwaves himself. Well, a rendition of it anyways. Irving Berlin's 1942 White Christmas was incredibly well received when it first debuted as a single sung by Bing Crosby. But 15 years later, Elvis Presley covered it on his Christmas album and Berlin was not having it. Quoting Jody Rosen, author of a book about White Christmas in NPR, Berlin couldn't stand Presley. And Presley recorded a cover version of White Christmas for his Christmas album, which Berlin took as a kind of sacrilege. He really thought it was degrading to his song, so he and members of his staff launched a furious campaign to try and get radio stations to ban the Presley record. End quote. Of course, like I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, it didn't work, and because it was Elvis, the song ended up on the top of the Billboard charts. I will say as a quick aside that possibly my favorite Christmas song of all time is the Drifters cover of White Christmas, which came out in 1952 and presumably Berlin was totally fine with. But alright, one more, and it is the 1943 I'll Be Home for Christmas, originally sung by Bing Crosby. The lyricist Kim Gannon wrote it from the perspective of a World War II soldier, writing a letter home and telling his family to prepare for his Christmas Day return. But at the end, she acknowledges that often, soldiers only got to go home for Christmas in their dreams. And that went a bit too far for the BBC, who refused to play the song on the grounds that it could ruin British morale. They said, quote, We have recently adopted a policy of excluding sickly sentimentality, which, particularly when sung by certain vocalists, can become nauseating and not at all in keeping with what we feel to be the need of the public in this country. End quote. Wow, and I thought Irving Berlin was being too harsh to Elvis Presley. Sounds like the BBC really hated Bing Crosby. And finally today, if that last segment got you in the mood to dive into the past and listen to some classic old radio shows, then you're in luck. Recently shared as a quick link on Kotke.org, I am super into this site called Old Time Radio. It broadcasts old radio shows 24-7 on their site, oldtime.radio. You can pick from the genres future, action, mystery, westerns, or comedy, or pick an exact show from the station builder. And they've got all the classics like Abbott and Costello, Radio Mystery Theater, The Lone Ranger, The Jack Benny Show, and more. All of the shows are pulled from the Internet Archive, although Old Time Radio is not affiliated with them, and you can download any of them as MP3 files so you can listen offline or on a more convenient device. And I mean, I know, we are not lacking for content in any way, shape, or form, and sometimes stuff like this just feels like a swelling of our paradox of choice. But hey, if you've ever been curious about listening to old radio shows, this is definitely one of the most streamlined and comprehensive ways to do it. Thank you. 
That is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go practice drinking wine from a Capri Sun pouch. You know, for practice, just in case I ever become an astronaut on Mars. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.